It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts. Acts chapter 3. We'll read the whole passage in a moment, but verse 6 is a very familiar passage to us, verse to us in this passage. If you remember there, in verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And uh, I love that verse. When I hear it, uh, it reminds me uh, of a story that that Pastor J.D. Greer, the president of our Southern Baptist Convention, uh, a story that he tells about his church, um, the Summit Church in Raleigh. Many of you are familiar with it. Large multi-campus church that meets all over the Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, They have a ton of college-aged students there at, at the Summit Church. And Pastor Greer says that when school is in session, the attendance uh, triples, but the giving only increases by $17. Um, he said, but on one occasion, a, a broke college student uh, actually put a, a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit in the offering bucket. And uh, it was a little note attached to it that quoted this verse. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you. <laughs> uh, and as funny as that is, I don't want to see any breakfast in the offering plates today. Uh, It's not an appropriate application of our text this morning. But we do see something remarkable in our text. Uh, Similar to chapter 2, we see an incredible event take place. And then it's followed by an explanation of that event that informs what we should understand, what we should believe, what we should take away from the event. And praise God, the writers of Scripture do this for us. I'll give you an example. You imagine you reading the Bible for the first time. And you get to the New Testament, you get to the Gospels, and you read about the virgin birth. And you say, wow, I've, I've never seen anything like this. I've never heard of anything like this before. But it has zero impact upon your soul, has zero impact upon your eternal destination, until the writers of Holy Scripture explain to you the theological significance of that truth. Man, this, this virgin-born one is the one who will save his people from their sins. We read that in Matthew chapter 1. That's the explanation. You have this aha moment, right? The virgin-born one is both God and man with the unique ability to save his people from their sins. I've got it now, right? I've seen the explanation of the event. We see the same thing in Acts, even in chapter 2 that we were just in. The Holy Spirit falls upon believers as tongues of fire. Now, we have a deacon election next week and ordination of those new deacons. And if we were to lay hands on our new deacons and pray over them, and as we're praying over them, tongues of fire, literal fire, were to fall in this room, you would rightly demand a couple things. First, a fire extinguisher. (laughs) And second, an explanation. And we're given that in Acts. When that occurred in Acts, we're given the explanation. Peter's first sermon explains to us, here's what you're seeing. The promised spirit has come. And this week in chapter 3, we see something similar. A crippled man is healed. And Peter uses that miracle, that opportunity as a, as a chance to preach the message of Jesus. Not only as the source of physical healing, which they've just witnessed with their eyes, but also spiritual healing. We see again, Luke is doing what he told us he was going to do at the beginning of the book of Acts. He's writing to show us the things that Jesus, Jesus continued to do and say after his ascension. And so the Spirit uses Peter and John in this chapter, but the reality is Jesus is the one at work. He's the one that's working here in the text this week. The chapter breaks down nicely into two parts, the miracle and the message. 
And so that'll be our outline this morning. So read with me verses 1 through 10 as we observe the miracle. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at, full, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Now as we approach your word, I pray that by your spirit you would lodge it into our hearts, that you would write it upon our hearts, that in this time, spirit, that you would convict, you would challenge, you would teach And that as we leave here today, we would look more like Jesus, walk more like Jesus, and talk more like Jesus than we did when we came. Spirit, we admit that we are dependent upon you in the proclamation and the hearing of this text. We need you. Be with us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's sort of three pillars to the Jewish faith. The Torah, the law, worship, which took place in the temple, and showing kindness through the giving of alms, helping the poor. Uh, And these are seen throughout the Old Testament. These three elements were were ingrained into Jewish culture, especially in the religious community. And as a result, beggars would find visible locations where they could set up and and ask for alms. Which this, this makes sense, right? If these are the three pillars of your faith, then it makes sense to catch religious people on their way to church to ask them for help. Where they know they're going and they're going to hear explanation of the Torah that's going to command them to help the poor. And so this makes sense. And so each day, this particular beggar was carried, because he had not ever been able to walk, carried to the gate called Beautiful. And it was the most extravagant and prominently used entrance into the temple courts. And so you can picture this guy, right? Even in your imagination, just imagine this guy and his condition. He's broken. He's physically crippled. He's humiliated. He's helpless. For more than 40 years, if you get to chapter 4, you learn that he's 40 years old. More than 40 years, this has been his life. Presumably for for decades, he's been in this condition of begging for survival. Can you imagine this condition? Imagine if you were there. If, if, if If it was for you to survive, for you to live, someone literally had to physically pick you up and carry you somewhere and set you down so that you could beg for survival. Can you imagine how hopeless that felt and how he would have, how we would have felt every day, day in and day out? And this broken man asks Peter and John for alms and something miraculous happens. In verse 4 it says that Peter and John directed their gaze at him. They looked at him. And this is not the, the primary point of this text, but I read an interview one time with a, uh, with a homeless person that like you would see on the corner of the street with a cardboard sign begging. 
and, uh, and the interviewer asks, what's the, what's the worst part of your life of, as, a, as a homeless person begging to survive? And without hesitation, without even a second, the lady looked at the interviewer and said, when people look away and will not even make eye contact with you. And then she, she continued. She said, even if you can't or won't give us anything, as we hold up a sign on the street corner, at least show us the dignity of being a human being by not turning your head and looking away in disgust. That's me. I've done that. I'm guilty there. Peter and John look at this person and have compassion. They have mercy in their heart toward him. Verse 4, they directed him to look at them, probably because he had his head bowed in humility. Peter and John say, hey, look up here. Then verse 6, you have the incredible line from Peter, I have no gold or silver, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And it shows us that while this beggar may have been broken, Peter and John ministers of the gospel were broke (laughs) they had no money and so instead of giving him silver or gold they give him so much more and he's instantly transformed instantly in a second his life is forever changed and the the language in greek here that's used um, for feet and ankles as you see in the text where it says his feet and ankles were made strong in verse 7 this language is unique to luke you may wonder why is that why would luke use language here that's unique well remember what luke is He's a physician. He's a doctor by trade. And so for him, as he's encountering this, this phenomenon, this miracle take place, it's physiological. It's medical. What's happening in this person, in this man, is it, it, medical. It's miraculous. But it's also that his, his legs, are, he didn't just stand up and start walking around on still mangled and deformed legs. He was instantly whole, miraculously healed. I think we sometimes forget about the instantaneous nature of miracles. That when Jesus would heal, even in his ministry, it wasn't like a doctor who gives a cream and says, hey, go apply this a few times, uh, you know, a day for a month, and you'll see some sort of uh, turnaround. You'll see that it'll get better. When Jesus healed, he speaks, he touches, he heals, and, and, and with leprosy, missing fingers, missing eyebrows, missing ears that had fallen off because of this horrible, ter- terrible disease are instantly remade. They're made whole. What an incredible thought that this guy in that instant was whole. Verse 8 shows us the result of the miracle in the life of this man. You've heard in the Bible that when things are repeated, it's there for a reason. It's it's emphasized that that they would repeat words in the text because that was sort of their way of of putting uh, an exclamation mark on their sentence. Right? So when you read about heaven and you see that the seraphim are flying around the throne singing holy, 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 it's emphatic. That's the, that's the way that they're describing him as, as holy, set apart, holy, other than everything else. And so when you read this text, look at the thing that's repeated in verse 8. It's incredible. It says, leaping up, he began to walk and he entered the temple, leaping and praising God. This man who had for at least 40 years never been able to walk is suddenly leaping. <laughs> There's no transition here where he's having to relearn how to use his legs or how to walk or you know, occupational or physical therapy. He's sleeping. You can't hold him down. You couldn't tie this guy to a chair. He's so excited about what was happening in his life that he's bouncing around like a rabbit from place to place, just, just prancing. I even picture you know, like, a, like a deer or some sort of wild animal that's been wounded and taken in to care for them. And for a long period of time, they're nursed back to health and you release them back to the wild and they're just bouncing around all over the place because they can't believe it. This is this guy. He's overwhelmed with joy. He can't sit still. And then verse 10 shows us the response of this whole thing uh, with those that were watching. 
So they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. That was the miracle. That was what happened. We read it. It's fact. It actually happened. It was documented. It was witnessed by eyewitnesses. This literally happened. But then what follows is the why. What follows is the how. How did it happen and why did it happen and to what end? The truth to be believed comes from the explanation of this event. And it comes to us in the form of a sermon from Peter. Before we move to that sermon, before we move on to the message that Peter preaches, there's a couple things to note here. Just in application for us as we observe a, a miracle like this. That this story serves as a reminder to us that we're to care for hurting people all around us. I think of how many people attended religious events in Jerusalem every day, going to the temple to pray, going to worship, and ignored the needs that were right there in front of them. Literally at the entrance of their, their place of worship. This was a very pragmatic way to have those needs met. I pray that that would never be characteristic of us, that we would be so consumed with what's happening Inside these four walls that we, we don't see right in front of our noses, those that are hurting, hurting and broken in our community, right around us. I think also this story shows us the importance of caring for the one, right? Like last chapter, chapter 2, we read that Peter preaches and 3,000 folks are saved in a day. What an incredible day. I mean, there's at least the temptation there for Peter to say, you know what? I don't have the time to stop and bother with this one crippled man when I preach, 3,000 people get saved, and so I have more pressing matters to attend to. I don't have the time to deal with this. this. This teaches us the principle that we are to care for the one, that we're to have God's heart, that, that our hearts should break for those that are hurting and broken, and we should pray that God would help us have compassion and mercy to meet physical and spiritual needs to individuals that we come to contact with on a daily basis. Let's move on to the message, verses 11 through 26 show us Peter's sermon. It could be broken into two parts. An explanation of the healing event that we just watched. First part. And then second part, an explanation of the gospel. <laughs> Let's dive in. The explanation of the healing event you see starts in verse 11. And while he, that's the formerly crippled man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This is sort of the, the don't get it twisted part of Peter's sermon where he sets the record straight. And he denies a couple things here. He first denies that this miracle was any act of witchcraft or magic or voodoo or some sort of mind over matter thing. With the formerly crippled man still clutching his arm, Peter says, hey, I don't know what you guys are standing looking at us for. I'm not some sort of wizard. He goes on to continue to set the record straight by denying that this was any sort of, uh, this happened as a result of any sort of worthiness, either in himself or in the man who was crippled, right? The healing couldn't be attributed to Peter's power or Peter's godliness. Neither was it attributed to the, to the piety or the goodness of the man who was being healed. He didn't even ask to be healed. It was not even a request. He had no idea that was what was about to happen. And Peter's essentially saying through this, none of this is about me or this guy. This is all about Jesus. Now making some application from this event and Peter's explanation of it, there are several truths that we learn here, in particular that shape our thinking as it concerns miracles, healing, faith. Tony Morita in his commentary, he gives six truths that you can take away from this text. 
John Stott and his gives three truths that you can take. I'm going to split the difference and give us five. Five truths right here that I believe the scripture teaches us concerning miracles then, on this occasion, and in our lives. So first one, God gave Peter and John the gift of faith and healing that resulted came through Jesus. This is important. It's not just semantics. Verse 16 clearly teaches us that Peter was given the faith to heal. The faith was Peter's, not the crippled man's. Now you see this throughout the Gospels that a person believes and they are healed. The faith here to heal is through Jesus. That is, Jesus gave it, bestowed it. It was a gift. That's the key to verse 4. When Peter looks at him, the text says he gazes at him. Now that's not a big deal, right? We look at stuff all the time. That's not a big deal Except for the fact that Luke had already told us in verse 2 that this lame man was here every day. This particular lame man. Probably in addition to others, but at least this man was here every day. And so the reality is Peter had probably walked past this particular man numerous times. He would not healed him before, never even attempted. But today, Peter walks past, verse 4, he gazed at him and something happens. What is that? Well, faith. To heal this man through Jesus. <laughs> The living Christ, the one who ascended, who is on the throne, did something in Peter, and Peter knew it was the day. That's why in verse 16 it says that the faith is through Jesus, not in Jesus. Jesus gave faith to Peter to heal this man for a purpose, and we'll see that in a moment. Second, second truth we learn right here, which applies to our lives as well. We need to praise Jesus as the giver of life, when he bestows it through ordinary means, use the quotes, as well as miracles. Verse 15, Peter refers to Jesus as the source of life. Now, this is a far-reaching description, meaning both physical and spiritual life. As creator, as creator of life, God sometimes chooses to work through miracles. We've observed that in the text. You've, I'm sure, observed it in your life. Miracles happen, but more often he provides for us through farmers and pharmacists and surgeons and moms and caregivers so today when you leave here whether you eat chicken because you raised it killed it and cooked it or because you drove through the the drive-through line at, at, at bojangles god is still the giver of life he's the one that is worthy to be praised whether your condition is cleared because people laid hands and prayed on you or because you went to a doctor and received antibiotics and treatments over an extended period of time, God is still worthy to be praised. And here's the other side of that reality. Even if he chooses not to heal you now, but waits until the final resurrection, when we will be given glorified and perfected bodies, he's still worthy to be praised. He's the giver of life. Number three, third truth here. This miracle with the crippled man is a hint for us. It's a clue for us of what we can expect in the messianic kingdom that we await. Verse 21, Peter refers to the restoration of all things. And this is showing us that in the new heaven, that, that creator God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And when he restores all things in there, the way that they should have been without sin, there will be no more lame legs. There will be no more eyes that can't see. There will be no more tongues that can't speak. Jesus is giving us a sneak peek of that great day when all will stand before him with perfect glorified bodies. There's reason to hope. Number four, because Jesus gave faith 
and accomplished the miracle, his name alone is to be lifted up. Friends, if you want some homework, go home and read chapter 3 and 4 and take you a highlighter and highlight every time you see the phrase, the name. There's an, there's an important uh, emphasis being placed here upon the name of Jesus. And I love that we just sang a song that emphasizes in your name, at the name of Christ, this man is healed. At the name of Christ, everything that is and was created was for him. At the name of Jesus, everything that the scripture says of Jesus is proven true. At the name of Jesus, not only spiritual or physical life, but spiritual life is given. Sins are forgiven. Only by his name are people saved. His name. Number five, truth that we see. Miracles serve the gospel message. Notice that as soon as Peter concludes this event and they walk into the temple, he doesn't stop and say, you know, I'm going to wipe my hands, brush off my shoulders. My work here is done. You boys can take it from here. That wasn't Peter's goal. This wasn't the end of the day for Peter. This wasn't the end of this event either. No, there was a purpose behind the miracle. And the miracle is a physical fact. It literally happened, but it serves a picture. It's a parable for, for them and for us. It shows us a greater reality. It was for that purpose on that day as well. Great, this guy is healed, but you need something more. And the reality is that Peter's teaching them on this day and us today is that you can be healed miraculously. But your heart, your body is eventually going to give out. Again, if that's what's been healed in the miracle, it'll give out again. There will be a day coming when your body will wear out. What you need more than working legs is a clean heart. And you need the message of eternal life more than you need a miracle for temporary healing. And I would say that of any one of us in this room. Even, even if you're facing an incredible diagnosis or an incredible uh, sickness or, or, or ailment or a crippling disability, what you need more than that to be fixed is a new heart. And this is precisely where Peter heads next in his sermon. I told you his sermon was sort of two parts, an explanation of the miracle and an explanation of the gospel. Let's read together this next part, verses 13 through the end, through verse 26. It's a little bit of a lengthier section, but it's Peter's sermon. He's preaching it as one event, and so I want to read it together in that way as well. It says this in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken, from Samuel 
And those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a rich and Christ-exalting sermon. Just think of all that Peter just informed them and us concerning Christ. And this is how we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning. I want us to observe just exactly what it is that we learn of Christ through Peter's preaching. So I'm plagiarizing this morning. I'm just going to give you Peter's sermon. First, we learn that Jesus is the servant. Jesus is servant. Verses 13 and 26, he mentions it for us twice. They, they point to the fact that Jesus is a servant. Reminds us that Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, we live in a culture, and I don't have to tell you this, that uh, it expects us to climb certain ladders. Socially, to climb ladders in our vocation, at work, to climb the ladder. We expect to be served. If we don't get it the way that we expect it should be given to us, we demand it. At least that's what the culture tells us. And Jesus points to a different way, a better way. He served us on the cross and continues to serve us today. And when you can grasp that, when you can grasp that the creator of the universe humbled himself, as Michael read to us during our time of singing, and not just humbled himself and became a servant, but even was crucified, a criminal's death in mockery and shame. When you get the way that you've been served by Christ, oh man, it's a joy. It's a privilege to humble ourselves and serve others. Second thing we learn here of Christ is that Jesus was glorified by God. Verses 13 through 14 show us this. That Jesus was glorified by the Father. Tells us that he was holy and righteous. He was the holy and righteous one. I think many people today think of Jesus as sort of a historical figure to be studied. Uh, did some, some incredible things. Uh, was an incredible example for us. And, but like other religious leaders, he's, he's to be honored and remembered, maybe with a statue or something. Um, but this completely misses the truth of who Jesus is, that he's in a class all by himself, that, that there's Jesus and that there's everyone else, and there's, even, there's no comparison. There's nothing else to compare him with. And if that's the case, if Jesus is set apart and different and holy and truly God, then how can we be in relationship with him? How is it that we, sinful people, as Peter's already pointed out in his sermon, how can we approach that kind of majesty? It's a fantastic question. This is the mystery of the gospel, that Jesus, the righteous and glorified one, as we see in the text, traded places with us, that by repentance and faith, Jesus takes our sin, he takes our guilt, he takes our shame, and he gives us his righteousness. So everything that he is, is given to us, and everything that we were was placed on his account. And friends, listen, only in Christianity, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world, only in Christianity... Because of the work of Jesus, does the verdict come before any performance or action? In Christ, you are declared righteous. What an incredible truth. As a believer, you're declared free, guiltless. Out of that freedom, we obey the righteous one because he's already dealt with our greatest problem, sin and death. He's been glorified by the Father. Next truth we learn, Jesus is the source of life. We've already mentioned this, but Peter says in verse 15 that Jesus is the source of life. John says in John chapter 1, verse 4, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. 
Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, all three of these men, Luke, John, and Paul, are telling us and them on their day that apart from Jesus there is no life, spiritual or physical And that at this very moment, for every one of us, this very moment our bodies are wasting away. Our physical lives are ticking away. That in this second, you have one second less on the earth than you had the second before. And as I'm saying this, you lost another one. And there's no way to get it back. That our bodies are wasting away. And further, if not for the sustaining work of Jesus, that bump bump that you feel in your heart right now that keeps you alive, if not for Christ, then even that would be snuffed out. That in this moment, he's sustaining our physical lives even more significant. That in this moment, though we all are wasting away and we are dying, even in this moment, we're getting closer to our own deaths. We all will face physical death. Peter's reminding us that apart from Christ, there's no spiritual life. You will face death. The question is, how will you face it? And as morbid and as sobering as that thought is, It would be hopeless if Peter didn't continue his sermon, but he does. He continues his sermon. This is the last, uh, or the next to last truth I'll point out to us in the text concerning Christ and Peter's sermon, that Jesus defeated death. Verses 15 and 26 show us that the message on the lips of the apostles, like Peter's first sermon in chapter 2, is continually that Jesus had risen from death, that he'd conquered the grave, that God raised up Christ and they saw him alive. Everything hinges on this truth, and you'll see this throughout the book of Acts. It's not just something to be celebrated at Easter. Jesus being alive, presenting himself to these believers, ascending and going to be with the Father, proves that Jesus' claims about himself were true. He was the God-man. He conquered death. It proves that the fathers uh, accepted the son's atoning sacrifice, that he, he was pleased in the death of his son to account that to us. It proves that, indeed, Jesus is the source of physical and spiritual life. Why? Because death couldn't hold him. And Peter's point is resoundingly clear. We're not saved, friends. And you need to hear this this morning. You're not saved by the quality or the quantity of your faith, but by the object of it. Put your faith in Jesus, the resurrected Lord who conquered death, who came to rescue broken folks like us. Last one, Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures. In verses 17 through 26, the larger part of this sermon, which makes sense if Peter's preaching to a Jewish audience at the temple, right? The larger part of Peter's sermon points to Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Peter says, Abraham, all of the prophets, even Moses, and they predicted, they pointed to someone greater that would come, and this is him, this is him. Don't, don't miss this, friends. Don't miss this, brothers. Standing in the temple, you're waiting for a Messiah. This was him. And that audience, though, like many of us today, are still waiting for something else, a, a better sign, uh, something else. Uh, and, and in other words, they're missing it. And missing it then or missing it today is as foolish as someone saying, you know, I love basketball. I love basketball. And then I really, really hope that Michael Jordan chooses to play for the Chicago Bulls. What? Like, that already happened. You can look, go Google it. You can see evidence of it everywhere. It already happened. And if you didn't see that, or if you don't see that, if you're ignorant to it or blinding your eyes to it, then it means you missed him. 
You can go watch some highlight reels. But you missed it. The same is true with Jesus. For, for folks that would still be looking for a Messiah, here's your evidence. He conquered death. He presented himself to us alive. And so all of this is what Peter's saying about Jesus in his sermon and what a Christ-centered sermon it was. All good preaching, listen friends, all good preaching puts a spotlight on Jesus. That's what good preaching does. It says, here's Jesus, lift him up, look at Christ. All good preaching also shows us, though, why we need such a great Savior. This is the backdrop of the gospel. This is why the gospel is necessary, because we are great sinners. And that's our condition apart from Christ. We are great sinners in need of a great Savior. And he doesn't skimp on that part of the truth either. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't pat them on the back and say, you know, you'll be okay. Here's ten lessons for living a better life. He gives them the truth. Look at the indictments that Peter points out about his audience. Just skim the text with me. Verse 13. You handed over Jesus, and he was innocent. (laughs) The end of verse 13. You're worse than Pilate. He was going to release him, and you killed him. You're worse than he was. Verse 14. You traded the holy and righteous one for a murderer. Verse 15, you killed the one who gave you life. Verse 17, you're ignorant. Verse 18 through 25, you don't even know your Bible. Verse 26, you denied your privilege. And the end of verse 26, you're wicked. Those are some strong words. Those are some serious accusations. And so what's the appropriate response? Praise the Lord, he gives us that as well. And it's to repent. It's to repent. In light of those heavy accusations, one hearing Peter preach that day or even maybe hear the text today or read the text in your own time and you may look at it and say, well, man, if that's true, if all those things are true, if those indictments of me are true, then is there even, so, if, is there even hope for such a wicked person as I? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Verse 19 through 21, in the very center and heart of this text, Peter's preaching about the gravity of sin, their foolishness for missing the Savior. He's, he's preaching about the glory of the, of the Savior, the one who's conquered death, that the, the prophets had, had told about him. And in the midst of all of that preaching is a clear invitation to the gospel of hope. And that invitation is repentance. The invitation is repentance. Verse 19 says that there's hope if you'll turn from your sins. If you'll turn from your sins, they'll be blotted out, the text says. I love that. Verse 26 says that God wants to bless you by turning. There's that language again of turning. Turning every one of you from your wickedness. In other words, you put those two verses together, verse 19 and verse 26, and you see two incredible truths. That repentance, turning from your sin, is necessary for salvation. And verse 26, our ability to do it is a gift from God. So it's necessary, it's required for salvation, but it's a gift to you from God that he would give you repentance. What a great truth. That even in our repenting, he's bestowing grace. Not only is repentance required, but Peter teaches us some other things about repentance, salvation, the blessings of repentance in this text. Look at this, look look at verse uh, verse 19. Three things in particular that 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 I'll point out that Peter teaches us about repentance. First, through repentance comes total forgiveness. Verse 19, your sins will be blotted out. And I love this picture, this idea of, of sins being blotted out. Uh, a long time ago, a commentator on scripture, William Barclay, he wrote this in his commentary. Ancient writing during this time was written upon papyrus and the ink used had no acid in it. As a result, it didn't bite into the paper as modern ink does. It simply lay on top of it. And to erase their writing, a man might simply take a wet sponge and wipe it away. 
And just so, when God forgives our sins, he wipes the slate clean. What a picture. What a picture that through repentance, our sins are gone. I think to think about Peter's illustration here, that's what he's doing. He's giving us a sermon illustration. To think of Peter's illustration in our own modern day terms, picture a dry erase board, a whiteboard. And picture, just, just imagine with me, you're in a room and that dry erase board is on the wall. And picture on that dry erase board all of your sins written out. Every sin written out. It had to be a big dry erase board for us. And all of them are written out there for you, spelled out with detail. Now imagine you sitting in that room in front of that dry erase board and pondering the weight of that sin. As you remember from your childhood, oh yeah, I did that. As you remember the conversation you had with your wife, oh yeah, I said that. If you remember the thoughts that went through your brain, oh yeah, I thought that. And feeling the weight of that, feeling the coming judgment for that sin, the shame that you feel because of it, the fear that you feel because of that sin, and then out of nowhere, as you're sitting pondering that sin, Someone walks in and forever wipes the dry erase board clean. And in an instant, they're gone. Every one of them are gone, never to be seen again. You can't even see a trace of them. And on top of that, turns to you and declares, you're innocent. You're innocent. Wouldn't that want to make you worship that person forever? That's precisely what happens for us in the gospel. This language of being blotted out that that Peter's using, it means that Jesus has wiped our sins and they're forever gone. No more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation. He's taken it, he's removed it, he's put it inside his own body and he's bored on the cross. What glorious truth. There are more blessings to repentance though. Doesn't stop there. In fact, that's kind of an infomercial, right? Wait, there's more. Second thing is spiritual refreshment. Look at verse 20. He says that times of, of, of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you know that's what that is? When we're, we're in the presence of our Father, when we're worshiping Him with a room full of believers like this, it's a time of spiritual refreshing, respite, relief, renewal, rest. Those that turn from sin through repentance and find faith in Christ by grace that God's given us, friends, you have been given rest. What, what good news that must be for anyone here this morning that's been trying to earn their own way. Been striving, trying to earn your way to Jesus, earn your way to heaven. The good news of the gospel is that you can stop. And you can rest. He's accomplished your salvation for you on Calvary. One final blessing that Peter mentions here as we close. And that's the hope of restoration. Verse 20 and 21 says that if we repent, we can have hope that Christ is restoring all things. Friends, I can't imagine... How terrible it must be to live life with the perspective that this is it. One shot. When this life's over, we're done. There's nothing after. I can't imagine living like that. Because the hope the gospel offers us, the unshakable hope of the gospel, is that our best days are yet to come. We're just pilgrims passing through this life of suffering and and toil and and pain and and, and cancer and sickness and and crippling diseases. This is just temporary. Our best days are coming when we're in the presence of our king. And this is the hope that, 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 that repentance brings to us, the hope of restoration, that one day we won't have to live here anymore. He's prepared a place for us. I want to close in this way. I want to remind you that this Jesus, this Jesus that Peter's preaching about, this Jesus that gave the, the faith and the power to heal this man on this day in the temple, this same Jesus offers you a promise and a command. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And when we truly believe that Jesus is in control of all things, that that he is the one who is sovereign over all, and that he's with us, 
Then, friends, it'll change the way we live, the way we serve, the way we humble ourselves, the, the way we talk to one another, our actions, our behaviors. Commenting upon that authority where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Pastor John Piper has this quote, and I'm going to end reading you his words on that phrase, all authority, because this is what it's hinging on. This one that Peter's preaching about has all authority. He says this, all authority. He has authority over Satan and all demons, over angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, natural objects and laws and forces, stars and galaxies, planets and meteorites, all authority over weather systems, wind, rains, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, cyclones, all authority over their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires, all authority over molecular and atomic activity, atoms, protons, neutrons, undiscovered subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes, authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, all fish, all beasts, all animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, all authority over all functions of the human body, every beat of the heart, Every breath of the diaphragm, every electrical jump across a million synapses in our brain, authority over all nations and governments, congresses, legislatures, presidents, kings, courts, over all armies, weapons, bombs, and terrorists, authority over all industry, business, finance, and uh, currency, authority over entertainment and amusement and leisure and media, Authority over all education and research and science and discovery. Authority over all crime and violence. Authority over all families and neighborhoods. Authority over every church and over every soul and every moment of every life that's ever been lived or ever will be lived. He has all authority. This is the one that Christ preached of. This is the one we worship today. He has all authority and he's laid down his life for you. Will you come to him today? Will you repent and receive the blessings of salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you in your word that we see evidence of your action in this world, events where we can't explain what happened other than Jesus worked a miracle here. We also thank you for the explanation of those events, that we're not left to wonder and speculate about what gods or what forces or what spiritual presences or powers may have done these things, but that through your word, we know King Jesus. We're given your word so that we can know of the cross and of the resurrection and of salvation that comes by faith through repentance, and that all of that's a gift of your grace. So God, I pray that in this moment that you would bestow grace. That even as I'm praying, that you would be giving the gift of faith and repentance to people in this room right now. That for some reason unknown to them, this truth is the most precious thing they've ever heard. Maybe for the first time in their lives. God, help us to respond in obedience. Help us to have a heart for the broken. Help us to care for the one Help us to cling to King Jesus like this crippled man clung to the arm of Peter. We give you this time. Work in our hearts as we respond to your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.